It's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. It's time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I'm Brother L.D. Azobra. I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. Today we got someone here that flew all the way from the big, what's called the Big Apple, New York. He flew down here to do this special interview with L.D. Well, I'm just joking, but I appreciate it anyway. <laughs> it sounds good. I have here Mr. Keith. Pronounce it. Get it out. Boshay. Bosha. <laughs> brother Keith Bosha. Now, now around here in Louisiana, we really say Bochamp. Bo they call it Bochamp. Well, you say Bosha. Everybody else cannot, cannot pronounce French, so they say Beecham or Bochamp. Bo okay, then. All right. Then. Welcome to Count Time, Mr. Bosha. There you go. Welcome to Count Time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No, no, we great that you're here, that you made yourself available. You just flew in town. Uh, yesterday, so I know you were in town yesterday to surprise my mother for Mother's Day. I haven't seen her in about eight months. Oh man, you've been on, you've been visiting. Man. You got Quite a lot busy. going on here, huh? But we gonna find out why and what's going on. <laughs> I like to first uh, thank my 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 girl, my ride and die. Uh, you know the one who get it all done for me, Miss uh, Maida McDonough. That's Thank right. you, Miss May, for making yeah, this happen. This is what this is what this is what she do. And I got my daughter here. She back on the scene. <laughs> I got Samia here. Hey, she gonna be working it today. Well, we like to thank you, my brother, for showing up and uh, for being a part of this and, and taking time out your business schedule. Because no, you ain't gonna be here long. You came here. Let's kind of get this out the way now because it's important. Because uh, Southern University uh, is putting on a opera downtown Baton Rouge, Louisiana at the Shaw Center. Tell us about what's going on with that. Well, apparently there's an opera um, that's, that's... Which, which is unusual coming from Southern University. On the Emmett Till case, which right. I'm very excited about. You know, over the years, I've had the pleasure of participating and supporting many plays and, and musicals about Emmett Till, which is surprising within itself. And so Southern University have their project on the Emmett Till case, so I'm here in town to support, um, to lend my support and, and to support all those who's there because it's a very important story that we must continually, continuously tell. All right, now once again, let me tell you, I gotta say this again. We have here uh, uh, local, but he's international, filmmaker, Mr. Keith Beauchamp. Bochon. Bochon. Good love, man. Where you get it? Bochon. <laughs> the end of this podcast. Love, look, 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 look. Don't, don't listen to me. Now. You know, I have a hard time with these, these, these French and English songs. But anyway, we got Mr. Keith Bochon, who's going to be, yeah. who wrote, who did a, a movie yourself. That's right. And you started that movie out quite a few years ago. Well, Let's, not just the movie. The movie itself has taken me 29 years to produce, but I also produced it. Well, you're only 29, you're only 39. I wish, I, I wish I was. <laughs> I feel like I am. <laughs> you look good. You but, look great, um, my brother. But, um, it, you know, I also produced the documentary, The Untold Story of Emmett Lewis Till, that went out in theaters in 2005, that led to the reopening of the Emmett Till case in 2004. So, oh, 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 so now hold on. So you saying because of your documentary, yes. they reopened that case? Yes, that, that was that was me yesterday. That was a long okay, time then. ago. Okay. Some time. Okay. But um, my most recent project is Till, um, which is about the story of Emmett Lewis Till, who was a young African American boy uh, who, in 1955, he was 14 years old, went to the Mississippi Delta to visit relatives. And within one week's time, he's abducted from his great uncle's home and tortured for one of the oldest taboos 
of the South addressing a white woman in public. Two men were so allegedly. Well, it's not alleged. Yeah, right well, two he he whistled at a white woman okay. um, in Mississippi. That in fact took place. All right. And because of this, um, two men were soon arrested. Well, they abducted from his abducted him from his great uncle's home and tortured him for a certain period of time and killed him. And um, this all happened within a week's time. He's abducted and he's murdered, uh, lynched. And two men were soon arrested, but later acquitted in a court of law by an all-white, all-male jury. And four months after the crime, the two men, Roy Bryant and J.W. Mallon, the two known assailants in the case, um, confessed to the murder of Emmett Lewis Till. And, of course, nothing happens. You can confess and don't get arrested. That's right. It's unfortunate. It's something that we continue to see today. Uh, now, to start that process, 29 years from the time you went from the time you started to producing the movie, uh, what took you on that journey? You're from Louisiana. Well, that, yeah, that's the, I guess that's the best way to start. My journey with Emmett Till <clears throat> took place when I was 10 years old. Um, I grew up, of course, here in Baton Rouge, Baker, Louisiana, and I was in my parents' study going through old vintage magazines that they kept over the years, and I came across an old Jet magazine that had the story of Emmett Till in it. And as I opened the pages, of course, on one side of the page, there's this angelic face of this young little boy, sort of a mirror image of myself at the time. And then on the other side of this page was this horrific face of this monster. And I could not really wrap my head around what I was looking at. And just so happened, my parents were walking by the study, and then my mother looked in on me, and she looked... She saw me with my mouth open, so she walks over and she looks over my shoulder and see me holding that photograph of Emmett Till. She calls my father in, and they both look at each other and say, we got to tell them the story. So at the age of 10 is when I learned the story of Emmett Till the way they knew it. But throughout my life, the name Emmett Till kept resurfacing. When I got into high school, I was interracially dating, and the first thing my parents would tell me before I left the house at night was don't let what happened to Emmett Till oh, happen to you. Now you got now you got to concern his parents exactly. now. Exactly. So, Cause you in the South. Yes, in the deep South. <laughs> and so it was used as a as an educational tool to keep me aware of the racism that still exists in this country today. But it wasn't until two weeks before my high school graduation where I have to say I had my real run in with racism, and that was when I was assaulted by an undercover police officer for dancing with a white classmate of mine. And that's when I decided to fight against the justice. Um, I felt the only way that could be possible if I became a part of the system in some way or a system to fight it. So I began to study criminal justice at Southern University of Baton Rouge in hopes of becoming a civil rights attorney. Well, the Southern University. The Southern University of right. Baton Rouge. Get that right now. Everybody mad yeah. at me now. Yeah. So we see you. You know, I was hoping to become a civil rights attorney, but then towards my junior year of college, or uh, right in my sophomore year, I was introduced to filmmaking by my best friend who had moved to New York City and began to work with his sister in our film production company. Oh, okay. And so I honed in on the skills, learned from scratch, you know, how to produce and make films. I started writing first for music videos, then producing, and then I started directing. And then I felt that, you know, although it was fun doing the music video thing, it wasn't anything giving back to my community. Hmm, and so okay. I felt, I was asked, I'm sorry, I was asked at a meeting one evening if there was a story that I would want to tell, would that be, and of course, Emmett Till came. 
Okay, hold on. That, that, but that's, that's a, a journey. That's an interesting scenario of events. Yes. At 10 years old. 10 years old. You had an experience by looking at a picture that really traumatized you. Mm -hmm. You would sit, you standing frozen holding this in your hand like, what is this? What, I you literally know? could not understand how this young boy could be tortured and killed in this way. Right. What did he what, do? Yeah. What, 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 what happened? What could a child have done exactly. that something would, some something or somebody would, you know, it almost looked like he, like he was attacked by an animal, a bear. But it wasn't until you got to high, high school where you had your own personal experience in running what we call with the law that all this stuff became real. Yeah, I mean, you have to be, you know, my story is not a rare story. Not in not, not our community. African-American males, of course, being a Southern man yourself, we all have been given the talk, uh, you know, um, and... You know, we've all been sitting, you have sat down with our parents or elders who, you know, taught us how to survive in this white dominant society. And that's all it was. I, you know, I had to talk at 10 years old um, and it was a very important time for me to understand the environment in which I live. And so it's not something that's rare. I mean, you can talk to many African-American men, especially those who have seen the photograph of Till, they would remember it like yesterday when they first picked up that photograph or that magazine and saw that photograph. Um, it's amazing to hear those different stories and how people were impacted. So, by, so now you 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 were in in New York yeah. when someone asked you 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 got other experiences going on you got other opportunities yeah. that you're involved. Actually, what would you if you, know, if you can do a movie? What would you like to do? Think it's, was it's still it's still in your alive in your yeah, mind. Till was foremost in my mind because my life experiences here in in Louisiana, and you know if I were to tell a story, you know um, it would have to be something I felt would be impactful that it would give back to our community. You know, there's filmmakers out there. I'm not those type of filmmakers. I didn't I didn't seek filmmaking. Filmmaking found me. It's my activism tool. Um, I believe that no more should we have to rely on our leaderships in our community um, to talk about atrocities. Nothing hits you more than a visual. It was the visual of Emmett Till that not only sparked my career, my, um, my journey, but many others um, along the way, especially those who were part of the Civil Rights Movement. They were all were so-called, I won't say so-called, but they all considered themselves being a part of the Emmett Till generation. Mm -hmm. And that, and many of them, um, many of our elders who are part of the movement would tell you, Emmett Till is what got them interested in fighting the good fight. But you much later, but it's, it's yes. the same thing that sparked you. This is a generational thing. Yeah, it, 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 it's a transgenerational um, situation here where Till's story is told time but, and time again. But that's when the, the old folks say, uh, God don't sleep. No, no, no. <laughs> no. So that's what that shows. God yeah, don't sleep. Absolutely. Injustice will always come to the forefront now. Well, it, well in, in those of us who have dedicated our lives to civil and human rights know that change doesn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. And we also know that um, the civil rights movement, the modern day civil rights movement, is a, a, an important movement that's continuous. And so, yeah, you're correct. Um, this, this is an ongoing fight. And, um, you know, those of us who have dedicated their lives to this ongoing struggle don't take it lightly. When you jumped in into the Emmett Till story, 
talking about doing a documentary, a movie or documentary for us? Well, it was, it was first I was trying to produce a feature film, um, a narrative movie. Okay. Now tell me, what, what you mean a future, a feature film? A feature film is a more of a narrative okay. film. Um, you know, the movies that you see in theaters, not a documentary. Um, it's because of my failed attempt to produce the feature film that the documentary is made. And I was fortunate to have great parents who believed in me enough to give me the money I was supposed to go to, to continue my education with to produce Don Toll's story of Amy Lewis Till. So if, if not for my parents, the documentary Don Toll's story of Emmett Till probably would have never been produced. Okay, so thank you, Mom and Dad. Thank Mom and Dad. Who's still here today, here today yeah. to see the, the, uh, what's called the fruit of their, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Of their my, labor, what my, they put forward. Yeah, there. my parents said they had never seen me so interested in a subject um, like that ever, and they just wanted to support so it, it me. It grabbed hold of you. Yeah, it grabbed hold of me. So it's so, my passion. So, so when you started this journey, now, now I do remember I had a conversation with a guy. So you know somebody by the name of Johnny B. Thomas. Oh, yeah, you know Johnny B.? Glenn, oh, look at that. Glendora, Glenn, Glenn, <laughs> Mississippi. Glendora, Mississippi, yeah. And, and who you who you, you had, a, he's the mayor. Of, yes, uh, yes. Yeah, my friend, Dr. Thomas Durant, wrote the, helped him write the book. Okay. A stone, uh, a hope, stone, hope, stone of hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stone of hope. Okay. okay. Small and, world. Yeah, very, very small. And uh, so that, how long ago that was that you had to travel there? About seventeen. Oh years my ago? God, that was in the early nineties when I first went to the Mississippi Delta, the early nineties. And mm. like I said, you know, the documentary came out of the frustration of trying to produce the feature film. I had wrote a screenplay until um, in early nineteen ninety five. And what ended up happening, producers who worked with Showtime um, optioned off the project, but they sat on it and they shelved it. So I had no control over the film for like three years. And because I was going in and out of the Delta, I was finding eyewitnesses or meeting people who trusted me enough to tell their stories. And that's how I began to learn about the story of Emmett Till. So you, been, so you now you're from, from Louisiana? New York, now you're back in the down in the south, in the deep south of, Mississippi, of Mississippi Glendora, Delta. Mississippi, yeah. and what they call Money, Mississippi. Yeah? Money, Mississippi, the Mississippi Delta entirely. Now, now, the, the Johnny B. Thomas, Daddy told you an interesting story. Yeah. What, Johnny B. Thomas is the son. Mayor Thomas is the son of Henry Lee Loggins, one of the black men we believe were forced to participate in the kidnapping and murder of Emmett Lewis Till. They, they forced him to participate. We believe so, yeah, yes. Okay. Yes. And so I met um, Henry Lee Loggins doing my research. Um, uh, colleagues of mine had information on Henry Lee. And of course, if you know the story of Emmett Lewis Till, when you start reading a lot of the old articles from that day um, about those who were participants in the kidnapping and murder, they talk about black men being involved. And one of those black men was Henry Lee Loggins. And so when I got his information, I reached out to him to see if he would talk to me. Because in 1955, um, when the trial started, the man disappeared. The black man who participated in the kidnapping murder all disappeared. And so no one could find Henry Lee and Too Tight, which was the two known black men um, who were seen holding Emmett Till down on the back of the truck. 
And so when I found out that he was still alive, of course, I wanted to go interview him. And um, he, I reached out to him, and he invited me to his home in Dayton, Ohio. Oh, he had moved out of, out of the he South? He was out of the South, living in Dayton, Ohio. And um, again, I reached out to him, and he invited me to his home to interview him. And because of that, that uh, the mayor also have opened up a museum, I think about 17 that, years that, ago. That came after. After, okay. after the case was reopened, um, a lot of the tourism industry in Mississippi basically grew, especially in particular the Delta, because they have identified all the historic sites where Emmett Till was in 1955. And Glendora, Mississippi, um, is not just a city, it was once um, a plantation um, where most of the perpetrators lived during that time. So it was not, it was, although it's majority black, it was mo most of the time was controlled by a lot of whites who lived in that community as well. Uh, that must have been German because they said it was Jews at the time. Mostly. Well, no, it wasn't it was German. German. It wasn't, it wasn't okay. Germans, um, possibly as, as who owned the plantation yeah. at that time. But I don't think people realize that Glendora wasn't just, it's not a city. It's actually a plantation. A plantation. It was a plantation, Glendora and, plantation. And majority African-American, you know, um, on the population yeah. who, who lived on the plantation is sort of still that way now. And does it, the, the, the bayou that he was thrown in, the, the black bayou? Black bayou. It's right, right down yeah, from yeah. there, too. Absolutely. That was one of the things that... <clears throat> Henry Lee Loggins really cleared up for us was the location where Emmett Till was actually disposed of. And because so, for so many years, you know, people have taken the narrative of the murderers themselves because after they gave their confession, they just, everyone assumed that that confession was something that was true. And it wasn't. And so after I did my investigation into the Till case, all these you know, parts that were once mysteries have come together and I come to find out that, you know, you can't even trust what these murderers said, which is one of the things that's frustrating to me is what, you know, they have controlled the narrative this whole time and I had to keep asking America, when did we ever believe murderers? When did we ever rely on murderers telling us the truth? Wait, but didn't and so that's interesting. So it's just unfortunate, you know, over the years, um, sixty-eight years now, that people have taken on that narrative from the murderers themselves rather than hearing it from the witnesses what transpired in nineteen fifty-five, and that's the route that I took. I studied from the black press and the things they were writing about, especially the witnesses themselves, and they told me what transpired in 1955, hence Henry Lee Loggins telling me exactly where they threw Emmett Till's body. So you, you got eyewitness accounts. Yes, yes, yes. Of what had happened. There so was so no, how, did, how did that make you feel? You say, like, hold on, now this... Well, I mean, it, I, it didn't happen overnight. Okay. Um, when I decided to take on the project, first I wanted to get the blessings of Emmett Till's mother because there was oh, so no you, way. You even met with Mimi? Uh, yeah, Mimi, Mother Mimi, Mobley Mimi. was my mentor friend for eight and a half years. And so there was no way that I would have continued to try to produce anything until without her blessings. The first thing I decided to do, because even at that time, we were having the same discussions that we have today about appropriation, who are telling our stories. Then we had the intergenerational um, um, also talk about, you know, our elders were saying, what 
have this young generation dying to contribute to the movement and things of that nature. So all these things were going on in the early 90s and I set out to produce something that was going to stand the test of time and that was going to be something of truth. And the only way you can get that truth is going to the people who lived it. So I wanted to, wanted them to tell their story. And to, how did that make you feel when when this information started yeah. unfolding? You, now you're an investigator, reporter. Now. Well, <laughs> I, mean, no, you I was, got, I was you, frustrated and angry because all, so many years you didn't hear about black men being involved with the kidnapping and murder of Emmett Till. It took me to go through um, tons of paperwork, um, documentation on the case from the FBI records, uh, the original FBI records from 1955. And to know that there were only two men that was ever fingered for the kidnapping and murder of Emmett Till, it was quite frustrating because through my research, I discovered it was up to 14 people involved with the kidnapping, murder, and the cover-up of the murder itself. Five of them were black men who would believe the force to was forced to participate because they were employees to J.W. Malvin and Roy Bryant. And so when you think about it from that aspect, it, it wasn't something, it wasn't an easy journey for me. A lot of my time was taken um, getting witnesses to trust me enough to tell their stories because I was so young. I was in my early 20s, going into the Mississippi Delta, talking about Till when it was a word, a name that was not supposed to be uttered in public. Literally, you cannot speak and say the name Emmett Till in the Delta. So they now, would not talk to you. Now, then who are you coming, coming here stirring up the, we got we got Pretty good much. folks here. Our folks here don't That's have right. no problem. Absolutely, yeah. So you and, thank God you got out of there. Well, you know, <laughs> it, look, considering <laughs> that I am a Louisianian, yeah. I can adapt. Yeah, you, you know, and that's what I did, you know, but I really had to, you know, understand the terrain and the people that I was dealing with in order to get people to talk to me. So the untold story of Emmett Lewis Till that led to the reopening of the case took me nine years to make. And a lot of my time was spent trying to get witnesses to talk to me or trust me enough to tell me their story so it could be used so, in the field. So you done done all the police work for the police. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Did you get an award for investigation? Did you get oh, I got, an award for something? Got, you something know, huh? the, the biggest blessings, I've gotten many accolades and awards over the years for this work, but this is something I felt I was obligated to do and I had to do because after meeting Emmett Till's mother, who was a huge inspiration to me in the work that I do, I had no choice. Tell me what that, getting, getting to know her, what was that relationship like? What was it like? That kind of well, you know, it was an interesting thing because, you know, again, before I decided to take on this project to move forward with it, I needed her blessings. So just like many of us who get started in a film and you're living in New York City, you do the film thing on the weekend, but you have a side job, you know, something to bring in some money. And that, my side job was at Estee Lauder headquarters in New York City. And I was sitting at the office and I said, look, if I'm going to move forward with this, I need to reach out to her because I didn't move to New York to work no nine to five. And so I went online. Um, unlike going online now, you know, you have, you had the dial up thing you had to use, <laughs> yeah, right? It, it, you, didn't have, you didn't have websites. It was only web pages. Right. And so I found a web page with the Emmett Till Foundation information on it and had Mother Mobley's information at the bottom. And by that time, I had knew nothing about her. I only knew the story. I didn't know what her journey was like. 
Um, I didn't know if she was still dealing with pain and anger so or whatever, you know, that someone would go through after losing a loved one. I knew nothing about it. So I cold called her. Number was on on the web web page. I picked up the phone, called her as soon as she picked up. I immediately hung up in her face. Scared <laughs> you. Yeah. Like, now what I'm going to do? Yeah. Huh? You, you was hoping she would do it around. Huh? Again, I, I didn't know what type of state of mind she would be in. I didn't want to open up old wounds, so I was afraid. And I fussed at myself for hanging up. And I said, you know, if I'm going to do this, I need to call her and get her blessings. So I picked up the phone again. She picks up on the other end, and I immediately apologized to her. And I tell her, you know, why I hung up. And I and she told me, she giggled, she saw it, she had a sense that I was nervous. And she said to me, baby, just calm down and talk. <laughs> and I calmed myself. And like, I, as a mother I, do, as a yeah. mother do, right? And I told her, you know, about mm -hmm. my journey with Emmett, and I believed that Emmett was my kindred spirit, and I felt that there was some something that I wanted to do. Um, especially if it was a film or just assisting her, I wanted to somehow help remedy justice in this case. And she was just blown away because of my age, being young and someone so young being so interested in wanting to tell a story like this. And we ended up talking for two and a half hours the first time we, we talked on the phone. That was 95. 96 is when I met her face to face. And I remember my best friend and I went to Chicago and we got in that cab and went to her home and I was escorted um, from the front door of her home in, into the dining room area into the looking kitchen where she she's standing I'm there smiling when I walked in and the way she would describe that first meeting which I've heard her say when she was with us was that she felt it was like a real life love affair because we she knew everything about me and I had lost my grandmother, and she kind of filled that void, um, you know, of losing my grandmother. So I felt like I knew everything about her, and you know, and she often said that she would talk to my mother about it all the time, and she was she would say things like, "Oh, you must you've given birth to Keith, but he's my son." So I, I kind of feel that void of her losing Emmett, but not replacing Emmett, and became a foot soldier for eight and a half years until she unfortunately passed away. So none of this could have ever happened without her blessings. Uh, as the stories start unfolding, it was a lot of new information to her too? Yeah. It was a lot of new information because she had her own narrative of what transpired okay. in 1955. Um, the biggest misconception of the case itself and the argument that you hear all the time, and people are confused about it, what did Emmett actually do? And um, unfortunately, in 1955, we encountered um, the store owner's wife, um, and that's Carolyn Bryant Dunham. He whistled at her, he woof whistled. And it was that whistle that started the chain of events. Of a 14 year old. Of a 14 year old. And, and she just passed, she just. Died yeah, a week or two ago. It's a whole other ball game. In Louisiana. She yeah. have moved to Lake Charles. How, how, right outside can you believe that? Right, right, right here. In, right in Louisiana. In my in, home state of Louisiana. Uh, and at the back door of a, of a lady who said who, that she was kin to the family of yeah. Emmett Tears. Yeah. So I did well. not, they didn't know she was living there. 
Well, a lot of people didn't know yeah. where she was living. I, you know, I crossed paths with her over the years, but oh, you not did, really. You had a chance to interview her? I never had an encounter oh, with her. Okay. Um, it seemed like every time I would get close to doing something like that or confronting her, she would be moved. But we now know after, you know, last year I was, you know, in the crew that actually found the warrant the 67-year-old warrant they had out for arrest in 1955, we know now that's probably the reason why she was always on the move, because it was an active warrant. So, uh, oh, so she was, she'd never been arrested either. She had never been arrested for participation in the kidnapping that led to the lynching of Emmett Till. Wow. So she, she, now she, she moved on in the last week or two and yep. her story. Yeah, unfortunately, but we were able... I have solace knowing that we were been able to tell a story that would stand the test of time within Till that really shows her culpability in the kidnapping and murder. Now, some people say that Emmett stuttered yes. when he talked. And this is what I was getting at in terms of Mother Mobley's narrative, because in 1955, when he whistled, he went into the Southern store, um, it was often said that he was purchasing bubble gum. And Emmett had problems saying his P and B words. And so Mother Mobley, knowing speech therapy, taught him how to whistle out certain words so he could pronounce them better. But this, on this day, um, it was a total different whistle. It was a distinctive whistle, and it was a woof whistle. This is a known as a woof whistle case. And what she had not done was speak to those who were present, who witnessed everything to take place. Even her family members were there. And they had never talked about it over the years until 2002 when I brought everyone together, all the witnesses together, and Mother Mobley together in New York, and they sat down and told her what happened. Hold so on, you made that happen? I made that happen, yes. It was the first time she really heard a more detailed story. Yes. From the participants, what happened? That's right. Man, congratulations! That yeah, was that was yeah. huge. So it that, was. That, that, I mean, it we still had was, many moments like right. that. But it had to be hard on her. But at the same mm -hmm. time, it brought a lot of relief in a way. Yeah, know, to, it, to know it what happened. A lot of relief and understanding, and that's one of the things that we talked about when I, you know, started the journey. Is that whatever I came across, regardless if I felt that it was going to hurt her or not, she wanted me to be very honest about the things that were found, so she can understand what transpired in 1955. And the reason why she went on with her narrative for so many years and why it's that, that's been out there, Emmett, was, he, he did have a stutter. Um, he suffered from polio at the age of two. Um, she did teach him speech therapy and to whistle out certain words. That did, in fact, happen. But in 1955, at that store, he woof-whistled. And so she had not ever sat down with those witnesses to figure out what actually happened. And the witnesses themselves, which were fam mostly family members, never wanted to talk above an elder. They felt that this was her way of getting past the pain or mourning her son. So they left that narrative out there in the, you know, in the history books and so on. Whoever had interviewed Mother Mobley at that time, she had her own perspective of what happened and they let that perspective live in order for her to mourn her son you know, in the way that she wanted to. At that meeting, when she heard what this most speci the specifics. Mm -hmm. Well, from what I remember, and my mom and dad were in there too. And what I remember, she was very positive about it. She was just really happy 
finally realizing that witnesses who were there were still around, one, um, and two, getting a full story of what transpired because she never knew. So in over, at the time, 30, 40 years, she had you know, her, been running with her own narrative until you know, I began to unravel this Pandora's box. And then everything came clear to what transpired in 1955. So even before she passed, she knew exactly what happened. She knew all the information I had that led to the reopening of the case. And um, she also knew the, um, the full story itself. Now, when, I know you had a chance to ask her about uh, the exposure of him yeah. and not closing the casket. Yeah. What was her, what was her uh, we all heard the narrative, but what, what did she tell you? Why did she do that? Well, there's a number of factors, you know, that had contributed to Mother Mobley's decision of having open casket funeral. One is that she was aligned with the NAACP. And so what a lot of people don't realize is that um, the open casket funeral that took place with Emmett Till wasn't the first open casket. The first open casket um, transpired um, um, I should say transpired, but took place in 1955 as well. But it was with the murder of uh, Reverend George W. Lee out of Belzoni, Mississippi. Emmett was part of what they call the Trinity killing. Um, you had three okay. significant lynchings that took place that catapulted um, the civil rights movement. Um, Emmett was the catalyst, the impetus to it. But there were two other murders that took place prior to Emmett's arrival in the state of Mississippi, in particular the Mississippi Delta. And so to get an understanding of that, I have to give you the story in context so you can fully understand the importance of the Emmett Till case to the movement. So in 1954, you have Brown versus Board of Education ending segregation in public schools, of course. The largest landmark, the biggest landmark decision ever won by the NAACP. Of course, out of the frustration of that, you had the formation of the White Citizens Council. The White Citizens Council was considered to be the uptown clan or clan members in suits. These were people who were against integration. They fought against um, voters registration for African Americans and so on. They did not want their kids to even go to school with African Americans. And so they vowed after the passage of, um, of, of the Brown versus Board, they vowed to bring a reign of terror throughout the state of Mississippi. And in 1955, which was an election year, they did that. The ver first victim was Reverend um, George Lee out of Belzoni, Mississippi. This happens two months prior to Emmett's arrival into the state. He is an NAACP member, member of um, the Regional Council of Negro Leadership, um, huge civil rights activist of that day, um, the first registered black voter in Humphreys County, and he himself was known for voters registration activity, going out trying to get African Americans to utilize their constitutional right to vote. Um, he is shot after a speaking engagement on his way home. Um, and he's, after he's shot, um, they had bullet pellets visibly seen in his face. 
And the argument from the whites and white supremacists at that time was saying that there were not bullet pellets, there were actually dental fillings. And so to prove that, you know, to prove that theory wrong, they had open casket funeral where over 20,000 people filed past his, his um, funeral, his Perception casket, his casket right, on that day. Just and to see, so, make the decision just, for yourself. Just to see, exactly. And so right after the assassination of Reverend George Lee, you then had the assassination of Lamar Dittley Smith out of Brookhaven, Mississippi, who was a World War I vet. Um, he was also an NAACP member and a member of the Regional Council on Negro Leadership, an organization that was founded by Dr. T.R.M. Howard. And so he is shot on the courthouse lawn in broad daylight in front of about 100 people trying to register black voters. In both cases, many knew those participants who were members of the Citizens Council, but no one was, you know, had the courage to go forward to testify against them in the court of law. So this is the atmosphere that Emmett Till walks into in 1955 in this crazed world. And he implements this whistle at Carolyn Bryant Dunham, which is against Southern Mores, but he instantly becomes the poster child to the anti-lynching crusade. Come, come, enemy and number this, one. Right. And this is why you had so much movement behind Emmett's case. And of course, the energy already in the, the got, it, got started. It was already now started. Now, fourteen year old. You know. And and many felt at that time, wow, you know, there are many young people who were killed, young kids, a lot younger than Emmett. Many were killed during that time in 1955, but you only heard the stories. You never saw the victims. And I like to think what the NAACP and Mother Mobley, you know, decided to do in terms of using the open casket funeral, using that. I like to think they were able to turn around the whole practice of lynching in America in a positive way is what I'm saying. Because with, with every lynching, you know, when you talk about lynching someone, the biggest thing of a lynching is the display of the body. So you cannot say that these men are, in, in Emmett's case, this young boy was actually lynched without anybody seeing the, having a visual. And so it was very important that Mother Mobley made that decision. It was a hard decision for a mother to make, to, to allow someone to see the death of her 14-year-old child. And considering that lynching was a term that was you know, we all shunned. As black people, we shunned that term because when a person is lynched, most of the time there's some negative, you know, energy behind this lynching. Why was he lynched? Why did this take place? And normally it's sexual in nature why the victim was lynched because most of the time when someone is lynched, it is always at the hands or as a response to um, black men speaking to white women, and so on. And this is the same case with this in terms of Emmett's case. Um, it was important that Mother Mobley made that decision to have an open casket funeral so the world could see once and for all, for all what happened to her son because by that time, we only heard about things. We never seen 
physically someone being lynched yeah. and not a 14-year-old boy at all. And that's what basically enraged a lot of people awakened the sleeping giant in us because we realized we can't trust white supremacy around our kids. Hmm. And that's why you had so much you know, momentum behind Taylor's and, case. And, and with the, at, the, at the time, it was when uh, Jet Magazine, Ebony Magazine was on the Mother scene. Mother Mobley made the courageous decision to allow Jet Magazine and to come in and take that photograph of and and it's that photograph that went viral of that day I would call it it was published and it went worldwide and so black people and you know saw this photograph and it awakened that sleeping giant in all of us and just like I saw that photograph when I was 10 years old it was the same magazine so it was a very important moment in civil rights history in this country. And uh, without the murder of Emmett Till and the courageousness of his mother, having this open casket funeral, allowing Jet Magazine to come in, and particularly David Jackson to take that, that famous photograph, um, we would not have seen the moment. You have never heard the likes of Dr. Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks. I had the pleasure of meeting Rosa Parks. She was a close friend to Mother Mobley. And she said to me, it was Emmett Till foremost in her mind that day she, when she decided not to get up from her seat on that bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Dr. Martin Luther King was 26 years old at the time. He not only took on the Montgomery bus boycott because of the death of, I'm not sorry, the courageousness of Rosa Parks, but it was because of the death of Emmett Till because he felt that the murder of Emmett Till was an intimidation factor to get, keep black people away from the polls. Again, 1955 was an election year. And so the question is, would the civil rights movement have come without the death of Emmett Till? I don't believe so, because both people, Rosa Parks and Dr. King, acted, made their courageous decisions off because, I'm sorry, because of the death of Emmett Till. And one missing link they don't tell you in history, which they should, why it's so important that we understand our history, is that four days before Rosa Parks makes a courageous decision not to get up from her, her seat on that bus in Montgomery, Alabama, she attends a till rally at Dexter Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. Who's officiating over the rally as a youth minister is 26-year-old Martin Luther King. Okay. Um, Dr. T.R.M. Howard is, the, is actually the keynote speaker. He was coming speaking about the, the death, the lynching of Emmett Till. Who's sitting in the congregation? It's Rosa Parks. So she hears this, and then four days later, she makes a courageous decision. This is the missing link in terms of the connection of history with Emmett being the catalyst that sparked the American Civil Rights Movement. Or you may hear people say he was the sacrificial lamb, and this is why we say that. Because without the death of Emmett Till, you would have never seen a mobilization of the movement like we have saw it. But could Mama Mosley, because could she receive that like that as her son, the role he played in the, in, in his, in, in the life of, of, her, of her people? That's a good question, because you know a lot of people don't understand Mother Mobley's age at that time. Look, I knew the more wiser woman. Mm -hmm. I knew the elder. That's the person I knew, the more posh, put-together woman, right? I didn't know that 33-year-old woman, and I have to say it again, 
33-year-old woman back in 1955 who had to deal with the death of her son and the trial of 1955 all within 30 days. Think about that. Within a 30-day period, this woman had to deal with all the isms in the world, gather herself to be able to mourn the death of her son and also fight for justice with him. You can't even get a parking ticket fixed in 30 days. So think about <laughs> that. Good. 33 uh, years old, analysis. having to make these decisions. And so she became an unintentional activist in the midst of it, just like I call myself an unintentional filmmaker. Look, this is a transgenerational struggle that we had for generations. And I know that many would like to see a solution to this, but you're never gonna have a solution to racism. That's the reality. Racism is always gonna exist. Man is always gonna have prejudice against man. What we should be teaching and what's important right now is to learn tolerance, having tolerance of each other and understanding and embracing differences. That's more attainable than to fight this false narrative that you're going to eliminate racism. It's never going to happen. But you know, Martin Luther King made us. Uh, I, I don't want to get out of where I start that. Don't but, go but, ahead. but you know, as a time now, like. Let me move on to this subject here. I don't, I don't want to start that. That's you just throw it out. I'm going to open a book. I have a lot to say. I start on, on the subject. But also, this that, is the first, you talked talk about, this is you talk about the, the, so the, the bus boycott. Yeah. And I'm interested in finding out, okay, Baton Rouge had the first bus boycott. That's correct. The people were still living there. The people that were at the time still living mm-hmm. when you started working on that, when, uh, when it, uh, up to the time you started working on the Teal thing. Why, I mean, that story didn't really... Tap t- it didn't touch you in a way that, like, I mean, look well, into this. Well, no, no. I mean, I, I, I can identify with Tillmore because of my circumstances and experiences here. You know, hearing your mom and dad, especially your mother, warn you about what could happen to you for interracially dating, you know, something as simple. I felt it was simple. I felt I was invincible. Nothing would ever happen to me. <laughs> and then, you know, I, I had my wake-up call at my pre-graduation party two weeks before high school. That I ended, you know, was graduating for high school. And that was, you know, something that really stood in my mind here. The whole time my parents are warning me about Emmett and, you know, uh, about what could happen if I interracially date and all what that was happening is what my mother said would happen. It was happening to me. So I couldn't help but think about him. Okay, now even with your mom and dad, and I know your dad probably said that, boy, but something in your mind kept you moving forward with your own agenda, right? Yeah, well, it was this. It was, it was what, what happened was it? to me. It was a combination of what happened to me um, two weeks before my high school graduation. No, 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 but I'm saying, but before that, what before kept, what? even though your mom and dad telling you. Yep. I was 14. So, so no, no, that, no, 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 I'm just saying, I was four, I was a kid, but you, but you saw, I was 10 years but you, old. You saw this picture, the t- you, know, you saw what happened yeah, in but, the But I say I was 14 because you yourself can remember when you were 14 years old, you felt that you could take on the world. You yes, felt invisible. Yes, Nothing was going to happen to you, despite of all our atmosphere around us, right? Mm-hmm. We continue to believe as a child that we could be children that nothing would ever happen to us. And that's why I was so close to Emmett, because he was that child. He was a child of the times. He felt that he was invincible. He could do anything in the world. We also think status protects us. 
things. Look at the, you know, where I live. You know, I grew up in an upper middle class family. I didn't have to want for anything in my life. And so, but what my parents did instill in me the importance of speaking for the voiceless. And you know, that stayed with me. Never knew how I was gonna do it. I mean, they didn't talk to it, their 10 year old child about it until I saw, you know, the photograph of Till. And that awakened everything in me at that point. So I kind of knew that I was destined to be in a position of power or to speak and, you know, and, and people at least give me an opportunity and they listen. I knew that, but I didn't know what would that be. I didn't know what career I would take on to do it. I've always thought I would be a civil rights attorney because that's what I felt I needed to be to fight this white supremacist system. But, but you did have something inside of you saying you want to make a difference in the, com all, in the community. Again, I didn't have many of the experiences or the pushback or the you know, walls against me um, to stop me from progression. I didn't grow up in a family like that. I, I grew up with an upward mobility family. Mother, a professor, my father was in the military for 20, over 20 years. You know, I grew up in a very disciplined household that taught me the importance of history and being in a position of power. I can't say that about other families and the way that, you know, um, they're brought up um, as individuals. But I knew, just like any child, I mean, we all have this fascination of having a voice and being seen. And, you know, we just don't know how to get there at certain times of our lives. Maybe we're too young and haven't matured enough. But I was fortunate to find my calling at an early age. I always had that fire in my belly. That's the thing. And we all have that fire in our belly. It was just the first time I ever followed that fire in my belly that led me to do the things that I do. And we all get that. When a child makes a decision or they're afraid or they're trying to figure out you know, certain things, you get that fire in your belly, you get that feeling of what's right and what's wrong, or you're capable of what is capable and what's not capable. We all have it. But do we all follow it? We don't. And for the first time in my life, when I felt that those butterflies, that fire in the belly, I followed it and everything fell in place for me. What you like to do now too is to encourage younger, young people. That's what I'm saying. I, I was, to, I'm no to different do, than to, anyone to, to else. To follow that. Yeah, I'm no different than anyone else. We're all trying to find direction and we're all trying to figure out how we can leave our indelible mark in the world. We're always doing that. You know, I often say, you know, when people, when you die, when I give lectures, what do you want your tombstone to say? You know, there's people out there who just, you don't want to live and take up space, and that's fine. <laughs> you know, I'm just not the person to do that. I think it's very important to understand is our obligation to leave this world better than we were brought into. And not everybody is made to be a part of the movement because I don't want people to have this illusion that, oh, I got to be a part. No, not everybody is made. It's selective people, few who are touched, who understands the importance of um, keeping this movement going. But as people of color, especially in our current atmosphere, I feel that there's even more a greater, of a greater obligation that we become active. Because as black people or people of color, we're born into activism. Just the simple fact that you're alive and you're black, you're walking protests. But it's up to you to turn that switch on or not. 
if you're going to turn that, that switch on to activism or not, or ignore it. Most of us ignore it. I can't ignore it because I can't stand to see, you know, white supremacy, um, you know, white supremacy continue its defined acts against humanity and do nothing. That's just not me, especially with the work that I do. So. <laughs> no. Now, with the, with the work you do, now, for, now you made a comment. Now, I need, you need to answer this my, What's before, the before we move on now. What do you want your tombstone to say? You know, I don't know. I, 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 <laughs> you know, I've been blessed to find my calling early on in life. I've done things that inspired laws to be passed that we have never seen before in this country. Um, I don't feel like I've reached my full potential yet. I feel like I, I still have a lot in me, and that's something my mother would talk to you more about, that I'm always frustrated and caught in this world of um, trying to decide on not only what's next, but I don't feel that I've done okay. um, as much as I can, you know, um, to be really, truly impactful. If given the chance, I, I think I can move mountains. Even though people say I've moved mountains with the work that I've done, I just don't see it that way because I know it's more in me that I hope could be released, you know, and give, you know, more opportunities I wish I can have to produce um, stories that's going to challenge humanity. So just the stories that you look to, mm -hmm. you want to impact the world. You don't want to just... I, again, it, it just, I, I don't take filmmaking lightly. I, you know, I truly use filmmaking as my activism tool. And that's probably why I'm not a multimillionaire now, because I've chosen to only deal with projects, uh, attach myself to projects that's going to have a great impact. And everything I do have to have an impact. I just don't tell a story just to tell stories. Uh, right, so what do you call that, nonfiction? Yeah, well, there's, I, you know, I'm not knocking anybody. There's filmmakers out there. So, who tell stories for entertainment? Right. I don't do stuff. I don't do that. You, you can't find I, it in you. I, I can't do that. Yeah. I use filmmaking as my activism tool. I have to be able to have an impact in some capacity on society or make something move, and that's okay. I mean, people are giving gifts to tell stories in the way they want to tell it, and we have to have the yin and the yang. But I'm not that filmmaker. Well, I would. I need to. Uh, My stomach I need to. You got me want to confess not no, too. No, no, I, no, I'm, no. I'm similar because, you know, I played football. College, LSU, pro football. All right. Yeah. And my most of my friends think my podcast need to be about sports. <laughs> you know, you know, I'm not interested to that level in sports. Yeah, yeah. There's too much. There you go. Too much, too much else going on in this world that need to be dealt with. Create some of this narrative. The narrative has already been written for most of the things that we deal with in this country. So we need to kind of, like with, with technology now, we can impact that now. Yeah, so, so we that's certainly what I, can. So that's I mean, what I'm looking to do. I mean, I, I'm excited about technology in terms of how, you know, young people have the accessibility of, of putting a microphone in front of themselves and, and having podcasts and, you know, putting, you know, consumer-friendly cameras on the market that's affordable for young people because everybody has a story to tell. You know, now we have an opportunity to hear more of these stories, you know, and inspire, you know, and, and aspire to do different things. And so technology, for one, has been quite helpful because it allowed, you know, people who have never really truly had access into this world of, of media, uh, so on, 
it has allowed them to become journalists themselves. Now, if you had the resources, everything was right put before you, mm -hmm. what would be the next project, movie, film no, that you I'm, would? I'm already working on it, so it's oh, not, you know, it's, it, right. I don't... It's already yeah, in motion. Yeah, yeah, it's already, yeah. it's already in motion. I'm already. Wait, wait, can we talk about uh, it? Uh, <laughs> can't get, I'll mention can't, it, but can't, I don't can't, can't give us, can give us a little, a little I'll bit. I'll give you a little bit. All right. Mark Essex. Ooh. Mark Essex. Are you familiar with Mark Essex? No, no, I'm not. Okay, Mark Essex was the first black sniper in America. The case took place in 1972, 73 in New Orleans, Louisiana. Oh, the top of the... Uh, there you go. Uh, holiday Inn. There you go. Yeah. Actually, Howard Johnson. Howard Johnson. Howard Johnson, yeah. And of course, his case is credited to starting the militarization of policing in America. And it's something that I've been thinking about for a long time um, because this is also a story that was told to me by my parents. And something that I read about. You, you took stories literally, huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, be careful what they tell you. Well, huh? honest, honestly, I've never been, you know, a kid that was into Marvel or superheroes, you know, the fake stuff on television. I was wait, never wait, into wait, that. But you missed that, though. Yeah, you, I, I, mean, we, I, I was we, never we, into that. That's why you've been traumatized. No, I'm just saying. <laughs> you missed, you missed that I, But I think I, I'm happy that I, yeah, I wasn't true. exposed to that or even interested in that stuff. Because you can deal with the real, the real stuff. I deal stuff, with real-life real superheroes. All right. So and those are the stories that I tell. I'm not into... Afrofuturism, none of that stuff, because the stories that we need to be telling are stories of that's going to bring us to liberation, and it's those stories of the 50s and 60s and 70s that I'm very interested in, because we've all been longing for a new movement. That movement haven't haven't Dumb. happened yet. Even Black Lives Matter Dumb. did not become the movement that we all thought it would be, and the problem is, which is why. I continue to tell Emmett's story, is that you don't understand what transpired in 1955. And we arguably say that the civil rights movement was the greatest movement than any other movement ever created by any human being on this planet, the most successful movement than any, than any movement of any day, then you must look back at the story of Emmett Till and understand what transpired in 1955 and the courageousness of his mother. Because there's no other story that speaks more to this generation, political and racial climate, than the story of Emmett Till. It's a mirror image to what we're dealing with today. Mm. If you understood that someone like Trump would have never existed, because he's only speaking the language of the Citizens Council. All the stuff that comes out of his mouth or descends his mouth the same is rhetoric. the same language. Same rhetoric. But it's important that we understand our history and there's yeah. people out there yeah. who don't want us to learn this history, which is baffling to me. Because, because that's why they want you to read. But everybody knows when you go to a doctor, <clears throat> if you're ill, you're sick, and you go into a doctor, what's the first thing they ask you for? Your yeah, medical yeah, history. Yeah, yeah. What, because what, they have yeah. to figure out how to treat you, right? Uh -huh. Or if you have some underlying health conditions, they have to understand what they're dealing with. You need with. to know your symptoms. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's the same. If you lose that, use that as a metaphor, it's the same as this country. But, We're a sick country that needs to you know, heal or need to be treated. And you can only do that is by establishing and understanding the history 
that we have gone through in order to understand yeah. what we're Let me tell you what, what, what shocked me one time. I was doing some research and reading on something, and <clears throat> doing the research, and I started thinking about Hitler came up, right? Mm -hmm. And I was looking at the story, uh, reading the story of Hitler. And, you know, America always show you stories of Hitler, but they, yeah. talk, it, they talk about him in a negative way, but they're always promoting Hitler in this country. And at the same time, you know, Hitler's the bad guy, right? Yep. So we're looking at Hitler. But Hitler said he learned about how to treat people. There you us, go. The people was through, you go sad. through sad. United States there you go. of America. America <laughs> eugenics movement. So America taught Hitler. The eugenics movement. But nobody ever talked about that. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So that's, that is interesting. Which is why it's so important we understand the history, right? Well, you know, also, like they always say, if you don't know the history, you're doomed to repeat it. Exactly. But the people in this country, I don't, you know, really, I don't look at it as a country, as a company. Uh, that this company, you okay. know, <laughs> that's just like, like the company in Glendora, uh, Mississippi, yeah. right? Glendora, that company oh, has had a purpose, had a you know a reason why it existed, and they don't want you to. There's no need for you to know who you are, your story, because mm -hmm. we got other plans for you. Your plan is not to even exist in the way where you think that's it. Right. You know, that's right. Just to serve the company. Yeah, it's just unfortunate, you know, there's, you know, the powers that be, I, you know, I often say, you know, white supremacy don't sleep, so why should I? <laughs> You're always going to be on guard, and that's what we're dealing with today, and that's why we're in the situation that we're in now. But I do believe, because I am a God-fearing man, I do believe there's a time and season for all things, and we have to go through these things to understand where we must go and how, how we must combat this issue. Because if, if, if we lived in a world of utopia like we always wanted, I don't think there would be a reason for man to want to live. Hmm. You know, man wouldn't want to live if things were perfect because man has to always strive to do something better than greater than himself. And so this is the cards we're dealt with in this country. Um, I would have to say the greatest country on the planet. Greatest company? Country. Company. Company. <laughs> yep. <laughs> But, you know, I'm, I'm also uh, someone who's very proud about his heritage. Even my mixed heritage I'm proud of. You know, it's just important for us to understand who we are in order to move forward and to, to go well, to well, that, well, that, 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 You know, and I had a chance to go to uh, travel to Africa 33 years ago, went mm -hmm. to Egypt, and I saw who these people are. People created civilization. That's right. Math, science, chemistry. Mm -hmm. So I understand what you what you're fighting against. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> no, no so, you do. You do. So, yeah, so, it's it's you know, it's just an interesting time in our history because now you have this anti wokeness movement um, that's been in existence for some time, not because of DeSantis and his bill, anti wokeness bill, but no, 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 no. you know, the term wokeness is something bad now. Yeah. And you know, they want our history taught in schools and, you know, all the different things that we've seen in the past. But look, but, but you're look, aware but, of it. But look, I, I, I got to say this again. Yes, sir. I understand why. Uh -huh. It's not a country. It's a company. A company ought to promote you. its brand. I got you. <laughs> so so yeah. they, they promote, promote their brand. They to promote. They didn't care about none of that. Uh -huh. I, I, yeah. You know, I, I got my company. <laughs> promote, which you got, you, what's the name of your company? Till Freedom Come Productions. You want to promote your yeah. brand, right? Yes. <laughs> you, know, you don't want to hear about other yeah. people's stuff. That's right. They got to do with this here. Yeah. That's where we keep getting the twisted, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. But anyway, moving on. Let's go back to uh, the, 
Howard Johnson Hotel. Yeah, so no, I, it's simple. simple. I want to go all into it. I've been in touch with the family, and um, that's something that I want to produce. And now, where myself. was he from? He was from um, actually um, Missouri, and he was in the Navy. He went AWOL, and he settled in Louisiana. And the reason why I want to tell the story so much is because of the fact of his connections to Baton Rouge, because okay. it was the students on Southern campus who were killed. 1972. Yeah, 1972, Denver Smith and Leonard, Leonard Brown. Um, our, you know, we of course, be, we, we, our I, student I, union is named after him, right. after them. And he was enraged when he heard about their death, um, their assassination on campus. And that's what pushed him over. You got to be kids. To, yeah, to retaliate against the police. Law enforcement. Yeah, yeah, you know, and we, we, I had a chance to interview some of the people that was a part of that. And we did, mm. we did, uh, yeah. we did we something. Their 50 years. 50 years, right? Mm -hmm. uh, last year, and I had a chance to interview Kara Hardnett mm -hmm. uh, and Brenda Williams, who really That's right. told a, a great story. Now I'm hoping mm -hmm. to get to with Ricky, brother Ricky. I'm gonna get in touch with you, Ricky. Yeah. Yes. And um, brother, I can't say the name, Labuma, Labuma, I can't say the brother's name, but there are some other people, but that is pretty interesting. Okay, now that goes along to the story that happened in Bad Rouge. What's the story? Uh, but, uh, Mohammed? No, no, I'm talking about, I'm not talking about 1972. I'm talking about, uh, I can't pronounce his first name, Long, Gabbett, Cabot. Long. Oh, Gavin Long. Gavin Long. Gavin Long, yeah. Uh, who came yeah. from Tennessee, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And did, I think it's Gavin Long, yeah. I think that's correct. Yeah, who came here and... With, but this is a little different. Little I mean, different? this is a little different. You know, one, you know, I'm excited because of the time that it took place. I mean, this is the time of Vietnam. You had the black Muslim movement that rose here in Baton Rouge. Mm -hmm where they had a shootout against police. Mm -hmm. um, there's another connection to the Muslim movement that I won't say here, but um, a, a case that I investigated, which is why I want to also tell this story. That's a part of this bigger piece of the story itself of Mark Essex. And then there's, um, of course, this took place in New Orleans. You know, and it's just a perfect story because it's the first time a military issued um, and it was from the Marines, helicopter, any military equipment was ever used on a civilian in America, first time. Then on top of that, his case became, uh, is credited to, of course, the militarization of policing throughout the country. And this is why I want to tell the story and also want people to understand that Mark Essex, just like many of us right now at this stage, we are all, unfortunately, suffering from racial fatigue. Um, I start. I started thinking of Mark Essex a lot more after the killing of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Teller, and of course, um, the case of George Floyd. I'm always the go-to person when something of a racial incident take place. So many people called me for answers, and I didn't have the answer because I was just frustrated and angry, just like anyone else. And, you know, in a very strange, poetic way, 
Um, the Mark Essex story reminds me of a poem, We Wearing a Mask, by one of my favorite poets, Paul um, Dunbar. And We Wearing a Mask, if you don't know that We, we, mask, we Wear a Mask poem, is a metaphor of how African Americans have to put on a mask when they go out into the white dominant society. And unfortunately, that day, he didn't put on that mask that he would normally put on to protect himself from that society. And so a lot of people want to call him crazy. I don't believe he was crazy. <laughs> and so I just feel that, you know, he felt that he could do something revolutionary to cause change. Now, I don't condone people shooting or death whatsoever, but was he crazy? No. And so that was something that... I, Throughout my career, being having the pleasure to have civil rights activists and leaders around me, making sure that I stayed the course, that was a question I would always ask them. When did it come to a point in time in your day when you realized that you had to make a drastic decision of life and death? And they had to do that back then in order for us to be able to progress as a people. We haven't gotten to that moment. <laughs> Like W. W. Du Bois, invisible people. We're invisible people, and, and the problem <laughs> is, is that you know, again, people. we don't truly understand our place in society and how important it is for us to become active in this movement, this ongoing movement, because the harsh reality: racial progression in America has only happened through the blood and the sweat of the death, death and the death of the black body. Has ha hasn't happened any other way. So if we ever want to see change in this country, then you have to look at what's happening around you. And one of the things that Mother Mobley used to tell me all the time was, Keith, you must continuously tell Emmett's story until man's consciousness is risen because only then that would mean justice for Emmett Till. Being young, it was like I had a whole bunch of weight on my shoulders hearing this because I didn't quite understand okay. what you were saying. But now, in the past two decades, I realized those words were prophetic in many ways, and what she was trying to get me to understand was, no matter how long and how hard I fight to get justice for Emmett, I may even attain courtroom justice, but it's not gonna stop all the other Emmett Tills in the world from happening, the George Floyds, and all the ones that we're seeing today, black and brown, whose lives are cut short at the hands who are sworn in to protect us, or at the hands of white supremacists. She wanted us to understand that Emmett and the Emmett Tills of today are one and the same. So until we are able to embrace that, identify that as such, we're going to continuously be on this journey of trying to discover and figure out what we must do when it's right before us. But Brother Keith, though, I mean, it goes back to the days of, of slavery, right? That's when right. you consider you property. That's right. So why, why would we think that even though it's 100-something, 200 years later? Why would it change? Why do folks, why would anybody still see you as inferior? Oh, oh. It's I mean, so why, why would I think that my slave master going to be happy now? <laughs> to have me sit next to him. That, that, well, that's no, a, look, can, can, I, look, I don't, that mindset can be overcome, but yeah. it takes a hell of a lot to overcome that kind of well, mindset. Look, look, the thing is this. Again, we want to leave this world better than what we brought ourselves into. Um, black people are deeply spiritual people. 
You know, and I'm not talking, I'm not saying religious. I'm with you. Spiritual. I appreciate that. You know, yeah. And so, you know, we're resilient and we're powerful. And, you know, the best way to sum things up, because I live by quotes. If you follow me on social media, I don't get up in the morning without having a quote that's going to motivate me to get up. If I can't find one, I'll stay in bed most of the day until <laughs> I find one. That makes me feel all right because okay, when you're on this journey, it's a long journey. Okay, okay. On the fight alone, it's you know it could be okay. a lonely road. And you know the best quote that I could think of that defines this moment myself and what all of us are feeling is a quote from Amiri Baraka where he says, there's no justice in America, it's the pursuit of justice that sustains you. Hmm. So it's that good in us, it's that hope in us, that whether it's little or small or tiny, it's that little hope in us that gets us up every day to fight another day in this good fight. And you know, being able to wake up with that on your mind knowing that it's that little hope in you that change is going to happen. That's what keeps us going. And, and that's, Despite and, the and, and, and that's so true. But what about this year? Okay, I'm a, I'm a former athlete, right? Yes, sir. And I, you know, I found out as a young, at a young age when I got in, when I would get in fights. <clears throat> coming, coming from my community, you had to learn how to fight. Now they don't they don't they don't know how to fight. So we just shooting each other. I hate to even think about that. But I learned something about a fight. Mm-hmm. If I start a fight, even if somebody if they're winning, you know, I learned that if they if, you, if they got you down, even if they're hitting you, if you just kind of lay there, they're gonna continue to hit kick. But I found out that even though they're hitting, they're kicking, and you kind of start positioning yourself to get that one good lick, mm-hmm. that one good kick or hit That's across right. the head. It does something to that person that hit on you, right? <laughs> yeah. Because now they ain't gonna just they gonna they gonna decide now. I'm not gonna just stand up there and hit That's the right. move. I gotta get a I gotta get a better position because he might kick back. Yeah. He might just that and that can now he might get the best of me if he hit me in the right place. So maybe we got to just start kicking back. I think we are. I mean, we you are. make it sound like that we're not doing I mean, the work like, and, and like, you know, like, like, people like, are now on the front lines, but we are. So, I mean, look at this generation, the most politically conscious generation of any day, more, more the most educated. I mean, uh-huh. they're doing a lot of and, great work. And great warriors, but it's yeah. turning against each other, though. Well, I mean, I think, look, I, I don't look at the world in that way. I, I look at it in a different way than you look at. I mean, you have your, your you know, the I'm, downside. I'm, I'm old school. Yeah, so I, I mean, so it's I'm, I grew old, up with. I'm, I'm old school too. <laughs> but the reality <laughs> is, is that, you know, you have to have the yin and the yang. I, I, tr- well, I truly true. believe I agree that. With you. No, I agree with and, you. And, you know, it's not just happening within our community. I mean, yes, our community are all, are, you know, we always exposed to what is happening in our community, but the white communities and other nationality and races are dealing with the same issue, mm-hmm. you know? But again, as I said, for our movement to happen, it only takes a select a few. Not everybody is made to be a part of a movement, you know? Just like in the 50s and 60s, not everybody was involved with the movement. A lot of elders need to support Dr. King, mm-hmm. you know? So when you look at life in that way, then you know you have your trials and tribulations that come. And so it's something that has happened, and it's not something we're living that's new. This is something we're reliving. It's happened through a duration. And if you look at this as a transgenerational problem, 
then you know it may take a generation or two to fix. Yeah, but then, <laughs> so, but you know, the best way to live, and, and you know, one of my mentors outside of Mrs. Mamie Till Mobley was Dr. Les Edmond. He was a former advisor to Malcolm X. He was, Who was in Mal again? Dr. Les Edmond. Okay. He was in Malcolm's core circle. He was the only non-Muslim in his circle, and he mentored me for a number of years. And he used to tell me all the time, you know, Keith, you know, I know in our community, we keep talking about leaders. It's important to have a leader. It's important for you to be in a leadership position. And, you know, that's good. But being a leader is not often what it's set out to be. Um, it's a lot of pressure becoming a leader and trying to guide people. So he told me that I should be living my life as a trailblazer. Because when you're living your life as a trailblazer, you don't have the stipulation of having to achieve something great because you're a leader. But what you do do, and what's important for you to do, is to lay the foundation or the path for the next person that comes behind you. And when you leave your, live your life as a trailblazer rather than a leader, then you know you're here for a certain period of time that you have to lay the groundwork for the next person behind you. And then that, in turn, you're planting seeds. So that's the way I live my life. You know, no matter how big the obstacle seems to be, I do believe that change is going to happen. It only takes a ripple effect. Look what I was able to do with just the story of Till. There's many people out there like me. They just haven't reached their moment yet. Um, they haven't gotten to that place where they they have that confidence in doing. So all I'm doing is is just you know hoping that people learn from my story, you know about my my struggles. Although I didn't really have a struggle, I can't never say struggle because I know people out there struggling. You know, I didn't have the amount of struggle that a lot of filmmakers have. You know, I had parents who embraced. Me making this decision, they didn't have to because, you know, sitting down trying to convince them to let me sit out two semesters was a big task. You know, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> so, but outside of that, you know, the struggle continues. And those of us, like I said, who's been a part of this human and civil rights fight for some time, know it's not going to change overnight. Rome wasn't built overnight, but we know we have to keep no, going. No, was Egypt. Through. Nor was easy, but we have to keep going that. because that—that's that hope in us, that faith that things will change. Okay, so I, I like that. So you not no, you, not only you're a trailblazer, you blazing the trail for Try others to. to come behind. I have so, to. So that, that's that's pretty that's pretty powerful. What time is it? I'm sorry, because yeah. I don't. Uh, what time is it? Okay, we're good. No, no, I'm, I'm, it's just like therapy for me. So I don't want. I, oh, you're you know, doing good, man. I, I just, I, I just I, talk and talk and talk. So I just want to be careful. No, no, but you're saying something. Yeah. So okay. you, you can talk. You, we can continue this, though. You, I, I appreciate okay. you, my brother. No, no, I really do, no, man. No, you, no. Young man with wonderful you. insight, wonderful perspective of life. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm, I'm kind of agitated too. So I got, <laughs> I got to do my, my too. Because I got to shake, got to shake right it up you. a little bit, right, to get it out of you. I, I, I got to go back to. Uh, Mark Essex. I, I, I did hear what you say, what you want to accomplish through this movie. Yeah. You showed that, first of all, you wasn't crazy. Yeah. The man had a purpose and a mission. Yeah, um, and, I wouldn't say it in that way. Okay, not in that way. But he did kind of, 
because he was trained by the United yeah. States government yes, he was. to to defend, protect, and whatever. And they say he went out, he went AWOL because he fighting another country, Vietnam War. Well, he didn't. He, I don't he, think he, he served time long enough to long enough to go to Vietnam. Okay, then. But he went AWOL. He was stationed in California. He was in the Navy. And after going AWOL, he went back to Missouri, and then he decided to go to New York and then New Orleans. And New Orleans is where... Now, how, long had, how long had, it, had he been in New Orleans before that took place? Um, probably a little bit close to a year. Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. yep. So, that, it was, so it wasn't playing. It wasn't playing. So, so, I mean, uh, it was just yeah. like we were all sitting at home during COVID, and mm -hmm. all these deaths started happening and piling up. And he felt that, you know, to be a revolutionary or, you know, I, I don't think he felt to be, I didn't, I don't believe that he wanted to be a revolutionary. He just he believed that he could do something revolutionary that could cause change to take place. And he was tired of it. And that's what, and he was tired of it, just sick like and, all of us. Sick and tired of being sick and tired of the same. Yeah, yeah. Seeing it day in and day out and what set him off was the, Killings on Southern campus with you know um, Brown and Moore. Now, how did you find that? Brown, Leonard Brown. Now, how did you find that specific information? Because that's key to understanding. Well, I, what I studied a lot on Mark Essex. It was important for me to, um, you know, with any subject I deal with, it's important for me to understand. Do your research and do my research in writing it. You know, I'm sitting down writing it. I have to have a perspective of the way I'm writing the story. So, uh, when you sit there writing and bring it, want to bring out a theme of something. This man was an assassin. Mm -hmm. Now we watch movies all the time on assassins. Yep. That mostly are the other folks, right? Yep. <clears throat> In other countries or wherever, they are mm -hmm. the assassins. Okay, this assassin impact the folks who normally do the assassins. Okay. <laughs> so how do you bring that out? Well, get, and, hate begets hate, right? Hate right? Begets, begets hate. That's basically what I'm saying here. You know, the origins of someone having animosity or anger towards someone, there's a cause and effect in all of that. So what made this man so angry that he wanted to retaliate against the white establishment? And this is not the first time in history that we've ever you know, seen something like this. I mean, you could talk about back in the days of enslavement. Um, you saw many you know, slave revolts that take oh, place man, throughout yeah, the man, country. Man. People are tired of being tied, right? You know, they realize that, you know, we can't really, unfortunately, there's not a clear fix, an easy fix to something like this. Something has to happen. You know, you have to make a decision of, you know, what can actually ultimately help progress a people or what you should not do. And so I, I think, and that's why I want to tell the story because, you know, this is something about rediscovering as well ourselves as human beings because he was just like any other you know human being out there he, he, he sat there and he watched death death is not something easy for anyone to death be watching. is not a beautiful sight and especially yeah. when you're dealing with the technology that we have I mean even now you know of course we see the death of African Americans every day on the streets of America people of color and that's not natural for us to see so what happens if someone takes all this in every day, day in, day out, nothing change? It creates, you know, More. someone that's, you know, 
unfortunately, that's going to be something that's going to possibly come out negative. But Brother Essex. Yep. Now, you got a whole other story now. Brother Essex. We're supposed to be talking about Tim. You got me on. I don't want nobody to tell my story. No, because no, I guess I kind of I like where you're going with it myself, right? I mean, again, it's hate begets hate. I'm just going to show. It has nothing to do with heroicism or. Is that. It's a story that needs to be told. A story that needs to be told. And why it needs to be told? In the midst of all that's happening right now, so that people can see what allowing the carnage of the streets of America to continue, you can see or get a sense of what you will be creating. But you don't think them people know that? They train at this. No, they, they really don't know that. You don't think so? You know, they really don't know that. Because if they know. did, they, they would be trying to do uh, more work in terms of reform, reforming police. I, I believe they think that this is something they can control and have power over. Because we haven't had, you know, what other great movement have we had since the Civil Rights Movement? And that was multiracial. But the, the difference was the civil rights movement, I believe, uh, from my perspective, would be those, the group of people, had the, everybody had the same enemy. No, we didn't have the you same know, enemy. For the, for the most part. Everybody looked at the I white mean, man we as the enemy. We were, no, we were able to identify yeah, right, Jim, Jim Crow. Crow. Right. But, the Jim Crow, uh, but they all uh, look, kind of look alike, right? You, you want to say that, but, <laughs> yeah, they all kinda but look alike. I wouldn't put that but in it, the it, same. It, it became more of them versus us. Like when I, mm -hmm. when, when I went to school and they integrated the schools and I was going to sixth grade, mm -hmm. where it was easy to see. It was them versus us. <laughs> you know? yep. And that's what it became. Like them, them didn't want us over there. And exactly. Us, and us was made but to see, go over there, so we had to I, go I, anyway. I think the way you categorize the civil rights movement is different from the way I categorize it. Yeah, from, yeah, okay. uh, because, you know, out of Emmett's death was the black resistance movement. It was a black resistance movement. White people wasn't rolling with the black resistance movement. It later became the civil rights movement because white people and others joined the movement. But before then, it was always considered the freedom movement or the black resistance movement. And so it's the way you define it, you know, especially that era in time of what it actually was, you know. So I don't see, you know, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure where you're, I mean, going with this but in terms of, you know. Just, just dimming us. General. I ain't going nowhere. Just dimming us. I mean, us. but you're saying that, you know, <laughs> of course, you, you're, you're saying that the establishment, the establishment know what they're doing. They do in a sense, okay. but they have never seen the likeness of a new movement for change. But now, the new movement of change, we got different people now. It's a total but, different but world. Because, you know, in this atmosphere, is, you know, I'm glad that I'm in town to support this, you know, the Till um, Opera. And I don't know why I'm thinking about it and hesitating to talk about it. It's just been so interesting to see over the years all these productions come up, and I'm glad to be here to support it. And so as long as we keep educating ourselves about the path, uh, our past, including the story of Emmett Till, I think we're going to be in a, you know, in a great place um, to help initiate a new movement for change. And as long as we keep young men and young ladies like yourself oh, you. open-minded and uh, 
and discipline and and with a desire to make a difference, they can have an impact on the world that we that exists and to bring forth you know, we gotta keep it we gotta we gotta keep things fresh too, you know. That's right. We gotta keep it fresh. Like you wanna do something fresh. So you what I like about what you're saying was interesting too. Now if you're a filmmaker most filmmakers want to make as many films as they can. That's right. You, that's not your desire. That's not my desire. So you don't I want to be no Steven Spielberg. You, you, you don't want to kick out no movie every year. I made quite, year. A, a, quite a few films. I've, I've had several television series for what, what, myself. What, 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 who are they? And, what, 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 what's the name of them? You got to um, tell them. The most recent was, was the Injustice Files on Investigation Discovery. I was, okay. running, I was on the network from 2010 all the way to 2015 when I decided to write Till. And so that allowed me to tell more stories of those who lost their lives throughout the civil rights era. I just realized that, that's that lawyer in you. What? Oh yeah, I guess I have the best of both worlds. That's that lawyer. So I said, you didn't get to be, you didn't get a chance to be a lawyer, but you're still a lawyer. I, I have the best of both worlds. You're still a lawyer. You're still yeah, able to tell them to do that, accomplish that on a whole nother way. You know, that's right. You know, and take the it and take it to court. The visual <laughs> because of what yep. you're doing, that's it, right. it, you know, it take it, it's taking it to court. Well, that's that's pretty. Interesting. So the thing that's happened this week, starting uh, Tuesday and Thursday, you want to you want to encourage everybody to go out to the Bad Ruiz Shaw Center downtown to support the uh, Emmett Till Opera. Opera, yes. It's an opera, so it's That's gonna right. be more of a, what you call that singing and musical. Musical, it's more yeah. of the musical side of things, and you know art. You know, the art form is very important. I think it's, it's the only untapped entity that we as a people have control over. Um, and you know that art just opens the hearts of everyone. So mm. any form of art is what I'm speaking of. So, you know, I have to support a project like this. You know, I have to continue to tell Emmett's story myself personally, and I think it's obligated for us all to continue to tell his story no matter what form of fashion. Now, now so, how, what decision made for you to come down here and be a part of this? Well, I, I have got a phone call from Miss Maida McDonald, and she told me about this wonderful opera that's gonna be held in, here in Baton Rouge, and of course, because of my connections with the Emmett Till case, I was invited. Yeah, okay, so let, let, let me, Miss Maida McDonald, you, you give us a description of what's gonna be happening. Okay, what's happening is the uh, Emmett Till Opera Southern is going to be held on the 16th, Tuesday of May at 7 p.m., Thursday the 18th of May at 7 p.m., and it's going to be held at the Manship Theater. It was an idea that was conceived by Professor Music Director Charles Lloyd uh, from Southern University, and uh, Richard Hobson is also a professor. He is the artistic director. So mm -hmm. there are going to be, uh, there will be a symphony uh, that will be performing as part of the opera. Uh, you can go online at the Manship Theater and get the tickets. I had the opportunity to do the public relations work for the project. So we'd like to invite the Baton Rouge community and others to please come out and support this endeavor. Let me just interject that I had an opportunity to uh, attend the premiere at the Manship Theater back in September by way of uh, Keith's mother inviting me. And I saw the Till story, phenomenal. 
absolutely outstanding work. And for those who don't know anything about the Till story, you need to talk about it. You need to learn about it. You need to talk to your children about it. They need to know what has been going on. It's almost like a comparative analysis that you can look at what happened then in 1955, and I was just two years old, mm -hmm. uh, and then bring it up to date and look at what's going on now. It's a lot of correlation of then to now, the past to the present. So my thing is, where do we go into the future? But one thing I like to say to uh, Mr. Keith is that my vision of you uh, is truly remarkable. The history that I have learned in listening to your interview here today adds more light to what I'm learning and have learned from you. So in three words, I like to sum up and say, you are truly an activator, you are an innovator, and you are definitely a motivator. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Well done, my sister. Y'all know who that is. That's yeah. my girl, Miss Maida McDonough. Hanging out with me, too. I appreciate that. And I just truly appreciate uh, dear brother Keith. Uh, I can't, don't pronounce the, the B, right? Beauchamp. There you go. See, you got it. By the end of the podcast, you're going to get it. Don't no man let's slow, but I'm going to get that. I'm on my last leg, but I'm going to get that with you. You got it. But, uh, you know, we want to thank you for being here today. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being part of Count Time. Well, thank you again for having me. I really appreciate um, the opportunity to tell my story or share part of my story. I just part of it. We ain't got big. <laughs> we just got the teal side. That's just a small side. And I just want to encourage everyone to please come out and support this teal opera this, um, this evening. Um, go out and buy some tickets and Come to the Manship Theater. You would be there? I'll be Front there. Front and center? Front and center. Y'all come out there and shake and meet uh, Brother Keith, Bullshan. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> come on, you got it messed up yeah, again. But look, but, yeah. but also, uh, <laughs> Bullshan. But okay, also, also I want to, uh, you, you, made, you made so many, you know, you said so many encouraging things about your mother and your father. We didn't tell us what their names, who they are. Yeah. You, you got to give us a little more history about that. Well, Ciola and Edgar Beauchamp is my parents, and um, my mother is pretty known in the community. Um, she was a professor at Southern University, business agriculture and business communications. And my father um, taught ROTC for the local schools here in the area. Okay. Um, a few local schools, Central High and um, I think Cheneyville, I can't remember. But yeah, um, we're all, you know, part of this greater Baton Rouge community. I grew up in Baker, Louisiana, and you know, my parents, had, you know, supported me throughout my life, and that's why I am. Did you know your grandparents too? Yeah, do I know my grandparents? Yeah, yes, grandparents I do. Just, I know grandparents. Okay. Okay, I didn't know they was wrong. No, you you know. want me to go down the whole lineage? <laughs> I didn't know how far you I got to get a little history. Well, my grandparents are no, no longer here, but my grandmother was uh, Florence Patterson. Out of mm -hmm. Allison, Louisiana, and Florence Patterson out of Allison, Louisiana, and my grandfather was Claude Banks out of Zachary, Louisiana, okay. and that's on my mother's side. And on my father's side, um, Ed Beauchamp, uh, Beauchamp of Beecham. That's Beecham what he got to say. Oh, we can get it right. So I, my, I got uh, another one. So I was yeah, on my father's side. <laughs> so um, you know, I, I, I'm. Louisiana, 
you know, I was born in Augusta, Georgia, but raised in Louisiana for all of my life. And what school was so, you attending? I, I attended, um, oh wow, let's go through it. I went to Alson, Louisiana in elementary school, Baker Heights, then Baker High School. Okay, right right in the neighborhood. Right in the neighborhood, when this, when this area was um, considered Klan country. Okay, okay. now say. you say you didn't have much interest in sports at all? Um, not really. So you didn't even play sports. I played sports here in the neighborhood, football, neighborhood football, if you want to, you know, call that. I was on a team, neighborhood football team. Okay. We had a neighborhood football team. And no, I mean, my life, the way my life went, I did some modeling early Get on. Out of here. And yeah, <laughs> it did. It did. I, that it introduced me to more of the entertainment Look, world. Where you, where you did modeling at? It started here. I did a where, little modeling where, here. Where, where Mater had yeah. a modeling. Uh, you modeled for Mater? No, I didn't model for Mater. <laughs> okay. Went through the whole Barbizon school thing at one okay. time. Did a few things. So. Yeah. All right. Now, now you got. Now, how old are you at this time? You, you look I'm, young, I'm but you sound like you sound, you sound like an old, old man too. You got a lot of wisdom. Fifty-one man. Like, years old. Okay. Will be fifty-two July second. All right then. All right. That's right. You're a young man with a, with a lot of wisdom, insight. Now, what? How important relationships or networking is in the in the world of of uh, that you live in? It's very important to network. It's very important to network and to, you know, be seen because, you know, it is true. You, you, you're out of sight, you're out of mind. So you always have to reinvent yourself. You always have to get out there and network and meet people who can help you along the way. I was fortunate to have civil rights activists and leaders be my mentors, you know, over the years. And that is because I wanted to make sure that I was doing the right thing and doing right by them. And so by me having those type of relationships prepared me for this ongoing fight. So whatever you want to do, it may not be filmmaking, you may want to go to journalism, you need to eat and breathe it. And it's not going to be easy. Nothing comes easy in life. For some people it do, but you know, with this ongoing struggle in, in, in the entertainment world, you know, nothing has really changed. I mean, yeah, we have more visibility, more opportunities, but you're still fighting within that system. And so it's very important that you have groomed yourself or prepared yourself to get, in, you know, involved in um, honing in on your talent. It's very important to understand your talent and, and to really build off of that and find a spot or make your niche in the world. Like I had to carve my path in the industry. Nobody was giving me anything and I've been able to do that. And so I know that anyone else who wants to be a filmmaker or wants to get into writing or producing or what have you, um, you could do it too, you know. Going to film school, I wouldn't encourage that for a lot of people. <laughs> I'd say take the money that you would get from your parents to go to film school, take that money and make you a short film and produce it yourself, put it in film festivals, that's gonna get you in um, into the industry a lot quicker. Just do, do something that the, the, the way that the system has taught you is it works for some but, of course. The, but you can fast track that by being more, a little more creative, 
That's right. And, and matter of fact, it's amazing how most of the, the millionaires in this world, most of the people are very successful, didn't even go. If they went to college, they didn't finish college. They didn't finish college, yeah. But they're the most successful people around. That's right. I didn't finish college. I wish I had, and, and I have, you know, motivation to do it now. But, you know, my mother, educator, told me best. College is not for everyone. And in this world that we live in, you're not going to simply get by by a college degree anymore. That's not, that world is over. And so you have to create or be an entrepreneur or, or, or develop something that people are going to want and need. And that's what's going to get you by. Because even with a college degree, you're capped at a certain amount what you can make. As a filmmaker, I can make as much money as I want. You know? So it's just pros and cons to that. You know, I'm not telling everybody to leave that nine to five, you know, but, you know, college is not for everyone, you know. But you are, you, you, but you do want to encourage young filmmakers, writer, producer, whatever they're interested mm -hmm. instead of you want to encourage them to do something, create do something, something of their own do first. So, create something, make your niche, you know, find your way, because that's what it's all about. Excuse me. It's not simple anymore. It's not that, you know, it's not so organized now. The world is different. Technology is different, you know. Like I said, technology has made it for us all to be journalists and filmmakers at this point. You know, you have your platform at your house. Sitting the camera up simply doing this podcast is a platform. This is giving people a voice, an opportunity, you know. And that's what people have to realize, you know. Understand technology understand what's needed, the world around you. There's money out there to be, be made. You know, don't sit around and wait for some, you know, corporation to hire you. I, that, I don't believe in that, you know. I, look, I struggled to get where I, I'm, where I am. But it had to be hard for and your it mom. Wasn't, it, was, it wasn't, yeah, for my mom. Because they, 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 they was part they, of the system. They were funneling the money. Yeah, but they're part of the system too, yeah. man. This is the way we do it. Yeah. So you saying yeah. that, that's good, but them, those days are, are, are They're over. You can't, it's not one uh, specific way to survive in this country now. I mean, you can't have this orchestrated educational background. Cause, but again, I'm not knocking anybody in the occupation that they choose. You know, everybody can't be filmmakers or in the entertainment or journalists. You know, we need engineers. My whole family, half of my family, more than half is engineers. So you need engineers. You need, you know, you need other people to make the world go round. So, but I, okay. Well, once again, I'd like to thank our civil rights movie maker. <laughs> there you go. He really is. I mean, and so everything he does is to get justice. Yes. For the system or for the people? Which one? Are you That's doing? right. For the people. For the people. All right. All right. Not the system. Not the system. I, mean, I want to make sure. I want to change the system. <laughs> I want to make sure that. I want to change the system. I got to put both of them in there. Okay. I, got to, I don't want to. No, no. I want to thank you. I want to change the system. Better the, the system. Where? And if it has to be dismantled, dismantle the system and rebuild the system. Now, how you gonna do that? Now, you know, well, hey. Now, hold on. Hold, hold, hold on. Hold we on. do that with police departments all the time. Hold on, hold on. Go ahead. I'm thinking this thing through. I'm this thing through because uh, now we're talking about the Matrix. So you want to dismantle oh, the Matrix? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're going to dismantle the Matrix? <laughs> you got to dismantle. You're like, so you're every gonna, system is made to be dismantled. But now, now, now I, I guess I do read the Bible it's sometimes. It's man-made, right? But say God going to come down here and, uh, 
What's what you, what your thoughts on that? Though? With God coming out? Yeah, yeah, because, uh, you know, like, uh, like Sodom and Gomorrah. I, I'm an agnostic. Okay. I, I, I um, don't truly believe in man-made religion. Okay. Um, I believe in the supreme being, but I don't believe that man know who, who he or she may be. Hmm. And so I live that way. Um, I know there's a supreme. Uh, hold on, not, and, not, and, I, and I, it's not knocking anybody's face because I grew up in a God fearing. I'm God fearing. I grew up in a God fearing family, Baptist, Catholic, Muslim. You know, I believe all religion has good, great, and great in it. And if someone's faith is what they need to push them through, uh, to navigate this world, then let it be. Hmm. On that note, I better close. I don't want mom get mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> she might go slap me across the head. My mom, right now. My mom knows. I'm agnostic. I'm agnostic. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm open. You know, and I'm glad that I live in an environment that was open for me. Yeah, that allowed you to. That allowed explore, me to be open explore, and explore. Right. You know, when you become a Mason, what they teach you, they, you know. Oh, okay, then. But that's no, what you they, read from but, all holy books. But that's what the Mason, right? that's what Masonic does. They get, ex expand you know, your mind, yeah. you know. It's about the hollow knowledge of man, right? So. Yeah. Before you close, I just yeah. want to say, I do not know if it was BET or NAACP Awards um, where the uh, actress that played Teal's mother, Danielle Dewey. Danielle, she was up for Yeah, I mean, we were up for tons of nominations. Yes. Um, yes, Danielle Deadwaller, who played Mamie Till Bradley in our film, Mamie Till Mobley. Um, was up for a number of nominations. The film received so much critically acclaimed and awards as well. And of course, you've heard that we were snubbed at the Oscars. No, no, and not the Oscars, not, not the Oscars. Not surprising, not, 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 not surprising, but up, you know, upsetting to me in a way because, you know, Danielle Deadwiler did a great job. Our director, mm -hmm. Janoya Chiku, our whole team, um, you know, Whoopi Goldberg, Fred Zolo, Barbara Broccoli, Thomas Levine, and my, my co-writing partner, um, Michael Riley. They've all been with me for a long period of time, you know, including Whoopi, Fred, and Barbara. They've been with me going on 20 years. Ooh, and okay. so, you know, this goes with networking, the importance of getting yourself out there and meeting people. And they believed in me enough to, to stay with me so long to make sure this film was made. That is powerful. You, yeah. A young man, these people from Louis, from the south, from deep the south, south, Louisiana, deep south, Baton Rouge. They, they, they saw that 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 that, that, that special man can shackle the hand, man can shackle the feet, but only you can shackle the mind. The mind is free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Count Time Podcast.